Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince. Will you not stay with me for one night and be my messenger? The boy is so thirsty and the mother so sad. I don't think I like boys, answered the swallow. Last summer when I was staying on the river, there were two rude boys, the miller's sons, who were always throwing stones at me. They never hit me, of course. We swallows fly far too well for that. And besides, I come of a family famous for its agility, but still, it was a mark of disrespect. But the happy prince looked so sad that the little swallow was sorry. It is very cold here, he said, but I will stay with you for one night and be your messenger. Welcome to A Thousand and One Good Nights, a new podcast about the stories behind bedtime stories. Turn the pages with two new dads, one a psychologist and one a book editor, as they try to understand the nighttime ritual of their foreseeable future. Why were you so excited to to talk about these in particular? Well, for one thing, because I think they made such an impression on me as a child. Maybe that's just sort of that uh, uh, kind of uh, like almost a hipsters <laughs> where it's like, oh, I like Oscar Wilde, but I, I favor his fairy tales, not his uh, <laughs> his plays. Or like, oh, I like fairy tales, but not any of that grim stuff. I'm more of a Oscar Wilde and George and Donald fairy tale man. You're a fairy tale <laughs> hipster, is that what you're saying? That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Not in any other respect, but just when it comes to to children's literature. No, but but they're you know they're uh, they're they're really good, and he's obviously incredibly gifted. And and because we did um, our animal friends at Maple Hill Farm for some reason, kind of the the tone of that, even though they're very very different <laughs> books. Though I guess that you know Oscar Wilde's fairy tales also have has a lot of the main characters are birds and flowers and you know various beasts. So there's some similarity there, but. Uh, but, but kind of the, the, the tone and trying to get a handle on the tone seemed really similar in both things. And I enjoyed uh, Our Animal Friends so much that, you know, I, it really put me in mind of, of, of this group of fairy tales. Though, though I hadn't – maybe I, I picked up a copy about 10 or 15 years ago. But other than that, I, I think I, I hadn't really reread them since my childhood. But I, I really remember them in pretty striking detail. So that's always a, that's always a mark of a, a good story. Yeah, sure. How you talked about the tone being really distinctive. Um, so for people who haven't read this or our animal friends, how would you describe the tone of Oscar Wilde's fairy tales? Well, I mean, part of it is that it's it's so hard to 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 put your finger on it because Oscar Wilde's almost famously glib. He he's always dropping little epigrams like. Uh, Life is far too important a thing to ever talk seriously about. Or you know, when he arrived in the states, he said, "I I have nothing to declare except my genius." Or, <laughs> uh, you know, all these kind of very kind of quick, clever things. But yeah. actually, these tales are very moral. And in fact, some of them they they talk about you know the the importance and the danger of having morals in a story. And and they're very there's a the most a lot of them in tragically and um and, and so you know he will. Uh, He'll throw in little kind of asides in the middle of lines like um, he'll talk about the, the king who always answered questions that were addressed to other people. So just that ability to really give a, uh, a, a whole portrait of a person in a throwaway line is something that that he shares with the, the authors of our Animal Friends at Apehill Farm where it's like there'll be some little kind of character quirk 
that immediately gives you an insight into the mm-hmm. like the horse's nature or something <laughs> like that or you know that the cats are you know it's just little one-liners but you can construct an entire complex character out of out of like a throwaway line and he's and he he's one of the few people that can have tangents as the swallow is flying over he'll see something and describe it and then be then you'll be right back in the action and so he has a rare gift for that and i think he shares that with the 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 provinces too yeah so um real quick what's what's the basic kind of plot of one of the stories we want we're going to kind of focus on is um the happy prince so you maybe maybe walk us real quick through what the structure of that's like yeah, and, and that's and I feel like that's his one of the collections was The Happy Prince and Other Tales. And it's definitely the one that made the, the biggest impact on me. So the Happy Prince is uh the, the the main characters are a swallow and this golden st- statue of a prince that has jewels for eyes and jewels in the sword hilt. And essentially that the swallow um is gonna be flying south uh to Egypt, but delays uh migration to court this reed, so he falls behind. Um, and then when he's preparing to go, he takes shelter beneath the statue and then he realizes the golden statue is crying. It's the statue of this happy prince who was happy in life, but now that he's set high on this pedestal, sees the misery of the world. And so what he does, he starts dispatching the swallow on these various missions. He'll have the swallow peck out his, <laughs> peck out his <laughs> eye, the jewels in his eyes and take the, the, the jewels from the hilt and distribute the gold leaf uh, that you know, that is, that, that, that cloaks him to people in need across the city. And then, uh, eventually the, the, the swallow essentially misses his window to migrate. So it gets very cold. The swallow dies. And then the, uh, city council says something like, Oh, what the, he's the happy prince has gotten very shabby. We need to tear that down and make sure that there's, we pass a law so that birds aren't allowed to die here. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so they, they break down the happy prince. They, they uh, throw the pieces of it into the dust heap along with the, the dead swallow's body. And then in a very bizarre sort of out of nowhere moment, like an angel grabs them and brings them uh, to God in, in heaven and says, these are the two most worthy things uh, that I could find. And now the happy prince and the swallow like stand forever in paradise, which is a kind of <laughs> really out of the blue. <laughs> um, okay, so the the thought as you that's a great uh, great summary. But I have to say, as I listen to you describe that, the first thought that runs through my head is, why the hell would I want to talk to my tell this story to my kids? <laughs> right. What, so, yeah. but but you, it had a very. I mean, at first blush, it sounds odd. It doesn't sound like like what i don't know what modern parents are used to reading to their kids in children's books um so and it, and it isn't even exactly like a like a older traditional fairy tale like the like little red riding hood or something like that so wh- why do you think why do you think it made such a big what do you remember about it as a kid why was it so important and impressionable on you well yeah and so maybe part of the thing is i've also tr- uh, trying to figure out uh not not just like the, the tone of like glibness but it to me, it almost sounds like Oscar Wilde is affecting this kind of older fairy tale tradition and 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 the the style and the tone that come along with it. So, it's obviously yeah, like he's playing you, with you, it you, for a, yeah, he's of. playing with it. Like I mean, you can tell that it's written by somebody with sort of a late nineteenth century sensibility, just the way that he talks about society and and things like that. That's kind of removed from kind of some of the more I don't know but like. Savagery isn't the right word, but something akin to that from like the the Grimm's fairy tales. But it has some of the 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 kind of the darkness and the morals of some of those old fairy tales. And the Happy Prince, like 
the, the scene where they, they take the swallow and the, the happy prince's heart to paradise, that's uh, not all the tales in well. If there's one, another one in the collection, it, the, the, the very short version is it's uh, a guy wants to woo this uh, girl, and, but he want, he, she has to have a red rose. So a swallow oh <laughs> uh, like makes a deal with a, uh, like a, a white rose to impale like, like to, to, to impale the, the, the nightingale on the on the thorn and then the, the, the rose turns red the uh, like the, the the young man gets the red rose gives it to the, the lady that he's trying to woo and she doesn't even like roses and so he just throws it aside and goes and picks up philosophy and then it's like well what's even the point of like all this noble self-sacrifice so you know like the, by comparison the happy prince is actually kind of upbeat <laughs> and, and compared to some of the other stuff but I, don't know, I, I think maybe that was why it stood out to me because it does have this different sensibility like it, it, and it felt simultaneously similar to some of the other. Cause I, I feel like I read a lot of uh, children's books that were written by kind of early 20th century, late 19th century. So like the, uh, like the secret garden, like, mm -hmm. and you know, uh, little women kind of, kind of things in that era. So I, I feel like parts of the tone were familiar to me. And then I knew about fairy tales, you know, like I, I was familiar with the Grimm's fairy tales. So, that was kind of familiar, but I don't know. This it still stood out definitely from the the other books and stories that I was reading, and it, and, it, and maybe just because uh, there are such I don't know the, 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 his words are occasionally so sharp it it, it really almost literally stuck out to me. Yeah. How, how how old were you? I have I have no I have no idea. I mean, because that's one, one thing, thing. Reading this, I, I kept wondering like. Who, what's the, what's the age range for kids who read this or, or is it something, yeah, I don't know. Do was he, when he wrote this, was he, is he writing it for adults primarily? Is he, is he right? Is it for kids? Is it for older kids? Is it? Yeah. And, and that's maybe something we've, we've talked about before is, you know, at what point did, were, uh, stories like, did they become children's stories or were there, or for a while, maybe there were just stories. So there like, you know, what's, right. what's one that's explicitly, and, and obviously, you know, you can, you know, Lewis Carroll was doing Alice in Wonderland and stuff like that. But Alice in Wonderland is another example of it's, I guess ostensibly a kid's story, but it's pretty trippy. Like it's, I mean, it, you know, there's, there's a lot going on there. So I don't, I don't that, that kind of blurs the lines too. So, but, but really when you imagine Oscar Wilde, like writing this story, do you do you think he's writing it with adults in mind, or do you think he really imagines you know kids, ten year old kids maybe sitting down, reading this and enjoying it, or or is he just using kind of the fairy tale structure a, as a way to to do something artistic? Uh, I mean, maybe maybe all of the above. I mean, I think that uh, definitely it seems like th there's something in spite of the moral. There's not indulgent isn't quite the right word, but it, I feel like he's writing this to please himself. Like it's very, like my, my big takeaway from these stories was, uh, Oscar Wilde really loves birds and flowers <laughs> and he really hates, uh, self-satisfied hypocritical rich people just mm. with like a savagery and a passion. And, and if he can like write a children's story, but still manage to sort of savage like the, the kind of, you know, complacent inner dialogue that, that he, that goes through some of these uh, kind of unfeeling upper members of society. Like even if nobody reads it, I feel like that, that gives him. Yeah. It almost feels like political allegory or something. Right. You know, um, almost like kind of animal farm or um, yeah. something like that. Dear little swallow, said the prince, 
You tell me of marvelous things, but more marvelous than anything is the suffering of men and of women. There is no mystery so great as misery. Fly over my city, little swallow, and tell me what you see there. Yeah, so what we've talked, we've alluded to the moral a little bit. Like, what, what to you, what's the moral of the story? Well, I think, and that's and that's really interesting because so the it it's that the the main character is the happy prince, and he says he tells the swallow in life I was happy, but that's because I was just never exposed to the misery of the world, and and he says something like. Uh, what is it like? Uh, happy indeed I was, if pleasure be happiness. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't say that it's not. So he's not saying that he lived a very pleasant life and that he, he's not saying that I, I, it was a false happiness. I wasn't really happy. Like he, like, like I wish I hadn't lived that kind of life, but he does say now that he can see misery, he, he definitely wants to, to do things differently than when, than when he was alive. And he, he says, also says something about how I don't know. There is nothing more wonderful than, or mysterious, or wonderful than misery. Or there's, 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 some, there's some quote to, to that effect in there too. So, uh, but I think that the, 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 it's a story about compassion, you know, mm-hmm. and compassion even uh, when you people misinterpret or don't understand like the the act of compassion that you're doing. So when the swallow delivers all these presents, you know, the the playwright who's uh, like shivering in his in his attic garret doesn't know that it's being dispatched from his statue via swallow he just assumes it's some admirer so people don't know who to thank but um and, and maybe that's how parents feel <laughs> and like maybe our, 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 our oscar wilde felt with you know all like the, the gift of literature that he was given to the world and they never really appreciate it I, I, I don't know but um but it's i don't know it's about i think how pity can stir you to action in, in a really meaningful way is that would, would that sound far off to you or? Yeah, that's I, I, I think that's exactly right, I, and I, I think it's really fascinating for that. I think pity is one of the more underappreciated emotion. I think we kind of um, naturally, most of us are a little uh, we shy away from pity, like don't pity me. You know, it's, it's right. sort of not a very um, socially appropriate emotion. But I, I really like how this story emphasizes that pity is actually key to like, you can't feel compassion until you feel pity. Like you have to see what leads the swallow to even stay a little while and not just head South for the, the comforts of Egypt is that he pities the, the happy prince. Right. right. And, and the, and the happy prince it pities all these people that he can now see, which is, which is what allows him to, to feel compassion, like a sense of connectedness with these people who we wouldn't normally be connected with. Oh yeah, no, exactly. And, and it's even this sort of transitory, uh, action of pity, right? Because the, the, one of the first actions that the swallow does is, I don't know, there's, there's some boy that's thirsty or hungry and, and he's like, if you, you know, if you take this jewel to them, then they can be, then they can be fed and, you know, they, they can have, and, and then the swallow says, well, I don't really like boys. They, there were some other boys that threw rocks at me. And, and of course they didn't hit me because I'm too, you know, nimble for that. But, but yet because he pities the happy prince who pities the boys, then he does it. So it's not like the swallow right. is, is like, why, like, why does the swallow care? He, he lives in kind of an adversarial relationship with humans, you know, a, a lot of times. So why should he care if, you know, if, if, if they're suffering, but through, you know, the, the gateway of his friendship with the happy prince, he's able to sort of access and alleviate their suffering. Right. It's almost like the prince is, is leading him to his own 
Okay. Right. Like he, he's saying, okay, fine. Pity, do this for me. Even if it's, you're just pitying me, do it for me. But then he does it three different times. And eventually in the, like there's one after he comes back from the first or second one, I think the, the swallow says, it, you know, it, it's curious. He remarked, um, it, it's, you know, it's snowing outside, but I feel quite warm now, although it's so cold. And the prince replies, that's because you have done a good action. Um, and so the idea that, you know, feeling, feeling good follows action, I think yeah. is really important, right? But let me ask you this, and this is something that even as a kid, I remember worrying about is, so the happy prince is a good friend to the, the poor of the city with, without a doubt, but is he a good friend to the swallow? Cause he says you feel warm because of a good action, but in fact, eventually the swallow perishes of the cold. So, I mean, he's, he, maybe he feels warm, but his good actions don't insulate him from the consequences of his missions of mercy. Right. Well, I, and I think that, yeah, it's interesting that the, the prince sort of, uh, I don't know if manipulates the right word, but convinces the swallow that it's, it's you know, he's, he's basically saying, swallow, this is not how I live my life in, in pursuit of the kind of pleasure version of happiness. Um, but I wished I had lived it in pursuit of this other kind of, deeper form of happiness, which comes from, um, you know, being compassionate and doing good things for other people. Right. And so he, he teaches the swallow to do that. But as a result of that, um, he ends up dying, right? Right. (laughs) He doesn't make it to Egypt. So yeah, I guess there is kind of a, I suppose a bit of a ethical quandary there. I mean, once again, it it works out because there's this sort of, I mean, the, the, the angel swoops in and like spirits them off to paradise, but I mean, yeah, and he's, there, not, he's not forcing the swallow to do it either. Right, and, right. and at one time, and at a certain point, he says, now, swallow, this is kind of your, you know, you, you've got to leave now. He yeah, does your chance give, to go, right. There's your chance to go, and you, sh- you should go. And then by that time, the swallow is sort of committed to the the mission. But I mean, I don't know, it's maybe because the prince has manipulated him. I, I don't know, that, that's kind of a dark <laughs> a dark reading of that. <laughs> no, I don't think it's manipulated. I, I think it, the prince is showing the swallow what he ostensibly wished he had been shown. Like there, there's, a, there's a different form of happiness that you can pursue that even if it doesn't, even if it leads to the opposite of pleasure, um, to death, <laughs> right. it's, it's still perhaps more worthwhile. Yeah. And like, isn't that like, that, that is kind of a, that, that's a high stakes thing to have in a, in a children's story. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> right. I mean, there's just a lot of, it's one of the things that, when I, whenever I read older, um, children's books like this, I, I realize how, insulated modern children's books are from death, like from mortality. It just doesn't, yeah. it just doesn't come up. I remember the first time I, mean, I may have mentioned this, but we, we pulled out little red riding hood and it talked about the, when the wolf like jumps and, and right. really wolfs down the grandmother. And yeah. my, Elena was like horrified. Her, like her eyes got big and she thought, why is he eating? Her? <laughs> you know, just this idea that this monster would suddenly just eat someone. Um, yeah, it's really, it, it just, I don't know if it's good or bad, but it's, it's just interesting how um, foreign that comes across to us. Well, let me ask you this. Um, how did you encounter fairy tales? As I mean, I feel like you, there's some degree of fairy tales just seep into our conscience, whether it's through you know, Disney movies or just references or collections of stories. But I mean, I feel like it's hard to reach adulthood without knowing about Little Red Riding Hood or, you know, Hansel and Gretel or, 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 or things like that. But do you know, do you remember having like a, a copy of Grimm's fairy tales or did, did you just sort of absorb kind of the cultural awareness of, of, of fairy stories and like kind of the, the, the structure of like a, 
a more medieval fairy tale. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the 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 first and probably biggest influence is Disney movies. Unfortunately, <laughs> I don't know about unfortunately. I like I really enjoy Disney movies, um, but but I also have distinct memory. Like we had this, I can still picture the copy of Grimm's Fairy Tales that we had in our house. Um, and it was one of those kind of nicer hardbound editions that had it was mostly text, but then there'd be like a really nice illustrated page of of one of the stories. And so I I, I for sure remember that book um, and reading some of the stories. But even before that, I remember like I remember distinctly my my grandparents had a bunch of these old books of they weren't maybe the original fairy tales, but like fairy tales and nursery rhymes. And the books were maybe from like from the sixties, like maybe when my my mom was was a kid. Um, so like a lot of those, um, uh, you know, just versions of what were probably originally Grimm's fairy tales or something like that, like Beauty and the Beast or, um, even things that are more like nursery rhymes, like Humpty Dumpty and Hansel and Gretel and that's Grimm's, I guess. Um, so yeah, I I think they kind of came from, from different places and then, um, yeah, so probably a combination of, you know, (laughs) Disney movies and, but then actual, um, fairy tales too i think yeah so so a couple of things and it's because i feel like it's not entirely fair to say that that disney just has sanitized fairy tales because even in no i don't think so more more mod like so uh like even the lion king which is a a, a modern you know the creation of a modern fairy tale or a, a story that was sort of created fairly recently um mufasa dies so i mean that's they're not and being trampled by wildebeests and Simba carries the yeah. guilt for that. And so, I mean, that's not a, that's not a light thing. That's, that, that's a heavy, that's a heavy moment, you know, losing a, losing a parent. So, but, but yeah, I think that's right. Like that's how a lot of these stories sort of flutter in. And I think even the, what's interesting is how, uh, the, but they're, they're, they, they sort of come in and all these different kind of shapes and, and forms. And even like the Oscar Wilde fairy tales, like what I was, looking for these to buy them again. I had a lot of different options and some of the options are sort of a more richly illustrated, uh, book that's maybe meant to be read as like a story time and others, this little sort of pocket book that maybe is more intended for adults, but with no pictures or illustrations at all. Yeah. So, and I, and I think, you know, anything that's been around for a amount of, for that amount of time, I mean, it's without, uh, being, it's it's been it gets to be repackaged and kind of like reimagined and tilted towards one audience or another and so that's kind of an interesting journey that this kind of thing takes right so if you if you just okay if someone's listening to this and they're they they're thinking like i don't know like why i don't know my kid i don't feel like my kids are really gonna get this if i read it to them what what would you say that like what's the case for reading at some point um reading oscar wilde's fairy tales to your kids like what's the, just your average parent is, you know, collecting books to read to their kids. Why should you, why should someone pick this? Well, I mean, for one thing, uh, and, and we've talked about this, the two of us, and with it's, it is nice when you're reading something as a parent that you relish reading it. Mm. And it is, again, it's the imagery. I mean, this is a great, Oscar Wilde is just an incredible writer. So in terms of reading something a lot aloud that is sort of, um, one of the, the, the better versions of how English can be done, I think yeah. is, is great as a parent. And then even as a kid to kind of like let some of this flutter through, I mean, he, he's, you, you can, it's one of those things like uh, people that describe Oscar Wilde, I think often talk of him as like the, the, just a superlative talker like mm. in, in, in conversation. Right. And he's one of those writers that you can, 
you could just see Oscar Wilde just saying, like, just speaking this aloud. <laughs> so this sounds like this could just be a conversation. He, he could, like, he, you could be at, at a dinner table with him, and he could tell you this story. And so, it's a, uh, it's, it's, it's words that are meant to be spoken. And I think it does have a powerful message, message about, you know, compassion and, and, um. Uh, I, I often side with Oscar Wilde on kind of the moral judgments that he that he chooses to take. Yeah, and and then even if depending on what version you get, you know, if there are illustrations, but even if there aren't, you know, he is a really good sort of uh, just describer of things in terms of how he describes a, a flower or a bird or uh, you know a, a tomb in the pyramids or, or, or right. something like that. He's he's just got a he's got a real gift for it. So I, I mean I, it's. It's a worthwhile read. Yeah. I, I also think too that it's a it's a common mistake that I even find my or I, I think it's a mistake that I, I find myself falling into sometimes is to when I think about whether a, my kids would like a book or whether it's a good idea re- to read or to introduce them to a certain book, I have this weird sort of idea in my head that they need to be able to understand it for the most part in order for it to be worthwhile for me to to read it to them, which I think is just nonsense. Like part of it, I, I remember as a kid, part of the like joy of reading is you like you you grow into books. You you maybe understand five or ten percent of a book at first. Maybe you just look at the picture. I mean, who knows what little kids are thinking, you know? Right. But, that, but as they continually get exposed to it, uh, maybe at different stages of childhood, they kind of they it unfolds. Like they come to understand more of it and more of it on on different levels. And I think that's I think that's such an important pro- that process itself is just really is really vital, I think, to kids' development and how they think about, um, certainly. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right, especially since, um, it's, it's not the whole idea of bedtime stories. It's not like you get this one chance, you know, cause otherwise <laughs> it's very easy to be discouraged because, cause I, I tried this week, I, I, I tried the happy prince out on Jack and two pages in he was, he didn't seem that once again, like who knows what's actually going on in his head, but he didn't really seem engaged at all. He wasn't asking questions. Yeah. And the way that he often is when he's engaged, but he did the same thing with our animal friends at, at uh, Maple Hill Farm, which mm-hmm. ha- like like. And recently, I just not now, Millie. That has the, the pictures on that are just like absolutely. That, that's right. a that's a big part of the storytelling in a way. Maybe that this isn't, but the other day I found him just like gazing at those and like flipping mm-hmm. the pages like quietly in a chair by himself. And so I don't know. I, it, it's like it's one of those things that you try it out and with yeah, you, know, you try it out again and then and and then maybe. You don't, and it once just because I, for example, I don't remember when I when I wasn't familiar with these stories, and it must have been fairly young because I didn't know they were written by Oscar Wilde. I just thought they were fairy tales, and so oh. it wasn't. I was I was in a uh, a bookstore in Paris when I was uh, like studying abroad, and then I saw like the Happy Prince. I go, oh, that's I didn't know that uh, Oscar Wilde wrote about the Happy Prince too. But no, it's just, oh, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just the same story. <laughs> and so maybe, you know, it's one of the same things where it, it just kind of filtered in, you know, bef- uh, you know, early on and then gradually absorbed and gradually was ready to sort of reckon with, you know, what he was talking about. Yeah. And I think that's great. such a great, um, sort of metaphor for how to think about, um, introducing your kids to stories and, and literature in general is just, you, you're just sort of like you're not even planting seeds. You're just like casting seeds around, you know, and like you can't really control what's going to, um, what's going to take root and what's going to, what they're going to latch onto. But the important thing is just to, to give them a pretty wide exposure and just see, see what they do. I mean, that's so cool. Like that image of you just seeing Jack, like in a chair by himself absorbed in this book, 
that you had tried to kind of introduce him to and he wasn't having at some point. Like that's, that's awesome. I just love it. Yeah. And I think what, and it takes some of the, like the wonder out of it to be like, this is now we're going to, we're going to study this book and we're going to study <laughs> this book. This this sort of course of like, just the fact like, Oh, you're going to put some of these things in front of your kids and then you don't know the timing of when they're going to latch on or what they're going to latch on to, or, you know, what their takeaway is going to be that it's, that it's this sort of surprising, you know, mystery and miracle. Yeah. Um, and, and a process that they, you want them to discover books, you know, more, more than you deliver books to them. I think that's my, that's my bias, I guess. Um, no, I think, no, I think, <laughs> I think we're in a room there. So I, 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 I won't, uh, uh, go too much back and forth. Just, just saying, I, I, I agree. Um, but one thing I did want to do b- before we wrap this up was, um, something that I, I just encountered, which is the, the end of the, uh, introduction to the particular copy of the fairy tales that I got, which mm-hmm. was uh, written by Giles, uh, Brandreth. And, uh, it's just about, so it's, I'll, I'll just, I'll just read the final paragraph with, with which he introduced the story. So he goes, when I first read these fairy tales, I knew next to nothing of the private life and tragic downfall of Oscar Wilde. I simply enjoyed them as wonderful works of the imagination. In 1900, when Oscar Wilde died, his son Vivian was at boarding school in England. The school's headmaster summoned Vivian to his study to break the news to him. The boy, who had not seen his father since 1895 and knew nothing of the circumstances of his disgrace, was shocked by the news. I thought he died long ago, he said. No, answered the headmaster. He died two days ago in Paris. Vivian had so many questions he wanted to ask, but his courage failed him. The boy broke down and cried. The headmaster said simply, he wrote beautiful stories. Yes, replied Vivian. I know. These are those beautiful stories. Enjoy. So, I mean, like, yeah. (laughs) So, and and, so that's, I mean, I thought that encapsulates a lot about why I love these because there is something incredibly beautiful about them. And, and I, I'd never, I, I didn't know that anecdote, but the idea that Oscar Wilde himself was sort of separate from his own son, but that he was still able to, you know, we, we say who, who are the sto- who was he writing these stories for? Was it adults or was it for himself or was it for children? But at least in some sense, you know, it, it, it was maybe a, as a parent, you know, that, that he was, if that wasn't in, in, you know, uh, conspicuously in his mind when he wrote them, that still became some of the legacy that, that he, that he passed along. So I don't know. I, <laughs> I rest, rest my case. Hey everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Thousand and One Good Nights. If you want to learn more about this book and other bedtime stories, check out our website at 1001goodnights.com. That's 1001goodnights.com. Be sure to sign up for our monthly email newsletter to get updates about upcoming seasons and other new content. Finally, please help us out by rating the show on iTunes. This helps spread the word about the show and get it in front of new listeners each week.